The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Well, it's good to be with you. I, uh, I have a lot of memories of the Apple River in Somerset, as probably you do. I grew up over by, anyone know where Cambridge is? Yeah, okay. So I grew up, went to a high school called Braham, just north of Cambridge, made annual trips over here to, uh, to the Apple River. I, I remember somewhere in the river, right at the end, there's a little dam, and people would float down the river, and then they would not know that that dam was there. It was about a two, three-foot drop. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, so we would park ourselves there and watch people uh, go over the dam and lose their $100 custom sunglasses and everything else. And so that's, I wish I had some more profound memories of Somerset, but that's what I remember and uh, had a great time growing up here uh, in this area. <clears throat> Let me just tell you briefly... Uh, a little bit about me. I grew up in a town, a little town called Stanchfield, small town. Uh, I am, I grew up as a, a very active kid. I, I got a degree from Valley City State College in physical education and health and ended up now being a pastor for 45 years. I, for those of you who are young, um, if you'd have told me when I was sitting out in my church growing up that I would someday be a pastor, I, I would have just told you you're absolutely crazy. <clears throat> and so don't ever uh, over or underestimate what God might be doing in your life. And I have been so fulfilled being a pastor, I never would have thought that would have been the case. And so uh, I always like to mention that because for those of you who are younger and growing up here, uh, be aware of what God might call you to do. And when he does, follow him because he knows he knows way better than you what you, how you're really made and how he really wants to use you in your life. I've been in, I was in Stanchfield, Minnesota for nine years. I was in Roseville, Minnesota for 15. I was in Wausau, Wisconsin for, at Bethany there for 23 years. And now I, uh, I just completed an interim in Medford, Wisconsin and living up in the Minocqua area. And I am now working with uh, Native American ministry in Wisconsin. So if you have a heart for Native American ministry, uh, come up and say hi to me afterwards. There are always those people that God has placed a special burden for that group of people. <clears throat> so that's what I'm doing, and I, I love the Word of God, and I, I never get tired of spending time in it. And so we're going to, uh, this morning, we're going to take some time and look at this. I'd like to pray, and then I'll introduce the passage and, and, and we'll begin. Father, I would like to ask you this morning that you would speak to us. Lord, I know I can speak, I can speak these words that you've given me today, but when, when you speak to us through your spirit, it is profound and it can often be life-changing. So Father, I would ask that today that you would speak to us, that when we walk out of here, we would, we would know there's something that you wanted us to hear and, and something that you want us to consider. Uh, 
in our lives in the days ahead. So just use this in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to John 15, and as you're doing that, let me tell you a little story. There was a, a guy that was tired of the city, so he moved to the country, and he bought a house there. He'd been there a couple days, and he was working in his garage, and he looked down the way, and there was a fence line, which is kind of the boundary between him and his neighbor. And there was an old man there in white hair, and he was, had this huge pair of shears, and there were piles of green branches laying on the ground. And so this man's horror, he, he walked down there and, and there were these beautiful grapevines and he was pretty much just massacring these vines. And so trying to uh, hide his discontent a little bit, he said, looks to me like you don't like grapes, huh? And the old man turned and, and looked at him and looked him up and down and looked at his black shiny shoes and said, you're a city kid, aren't you? Well, not, not wanting to admit, not, not really. He said, you love grapes? He said, I love grapes. My, my family loved grapes. You know, we were kind of hoping that maybe we could share these grapes, but it doesn't really look like that now. And the old man turned and looked at him and he said, you know, we can either have a fence line of the most beautiful vines in this whole county, or we can have the biggest, juiciest grapes that you've ever tasted, but we can't have both. And so I tell that story this morning because that's the metaphor that Jesus uses here in, in John 15. <clears throat> so listen, follow along with me. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear <clears throat> more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and die in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now I'm the vine, you the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, <clears throat> he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire to be burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. I don't know if you noticed here, but Jesus tells us why he spoke these words. <clears throat> Did you notice in, uh, in verse 11? And I want to make note of this <clears throat> because 
Jesus makes it very clear why he's giving us this teaching. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So these words this morning are given so that you would live a life of joy. And so I might ask you, you know, if you were to rate the level of joy you're experiencing in your life now from 1 to 10, what would that be? Because Jesus said, I I want the joy that you experience in your life to be full. And so what, what is joy? Well, joy is, it's an emotion. Joy is from the Holy Spirit, which really narrows down what true joy is. It's a fruit of the Spirit of God. It's something that you experience in your soul, in the deepest part of your being. And it's, it flows from what you are responding to in what you are experiencing in Jesus. That, that's how I would define joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis defined it this way. He said, in the heart of every human being <clears throat> is a desire for home. And home is, you know, God made us to be, uh, you know, like in the garden, walking with him, he with us, I, you know, we with him. And so in the heart of every one of us is this longing to be connected with God. It's, it's longing for what we were made for. And so we see here that our culture is seeking to find this, what it is that's going to speak to this lack of identity in our lives. I think the whole gender issue in our day is a, an attempt to, to fill that hole. And so joy is when that hole, that hole is filled with what God has made us for. And that is the, the thing that cannot change in our lives. Happiness comes and goes. It goes with the weather. It goes with our health report. It goes with our finances. It comes and goes, but joy is a continuous thing because it is based not on circumstance, but on those continual things that we receive from Christ. I would say joy is the greatest pleasure in the world. I mean, when you're experiencing true joy, there is nothing greater that you could experience in the world. And so in this text this morning, what I'd like to do is just spend a little time and I'd like to bring out three things that are really critical in experiencing joy in your life. Three sources of joy in your life. So here's the first one. The first one is living in the presence of Jesus. Living in the presence of Christ. We see this in, if you notice here, look at the verse there in in verse 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless he abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. And so, throughout the Bible, we have this this thing about abiding in Jesus. And and here's here's the truth. You can study the Bible. You can be involved in Bible studies. 
You can faithfully come to church. You can be involved in a ministry here in this church. You can be living a good moral life and not, being, not experiencing the presence of Jesus. That, that's what religion is all about. And so why do young people grow up in a church and then walk away? Because for many, it, they have missed the experience of living in the presence relationally with Jesus. That's what this word abide means. And so in, in Ephesians, Paul prays and he says, I, I pray that you would be strengthened by his power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may, what? Dwell, there's the word again, abide, it's the same, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In Colossians, Paul says, hold fast to the head, like the branch being connected to the vine, that the whole body may be nourished. And so you get this picture of abiding in Jesus, living in his presence, and receiving what he has to give us and, and joy, we see here, joy is the key thing he has. There was a painter by the name of Steinway who was not a believer. He was, uh, I would say he was a God-fearing man. This is generations ago. But he, in his story of coming to faith, he talks about a significant thing that happened. He was painting the picture of Christ on the cross and every day there was a little girl who would come in and she would watch him. And as the picture began to come into shape, one day she looked and she, she said to the painter Steinway, she said, oh my, she said, he must have been a really bad man for them to kill him like that. And Steinway said, no, 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 he was not a bad man. He was, he was a good man. He, he died for others. And the little girl looked at him and she said, Mr. Steinway, did, did he die for you? And Steinway tells in his story, his journey to faith, that, that that was the question. He began to ponder the fact that it wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. That he began to, to realize the profound truth that Jesus had died for him. Personally. And so we see here this connection, this abiding with the vine, which is so important. You know, often we look at what Jesus did on the cross and we think Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins so that I could have eternal life. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. It's part of it. It's the means to the end. But Jesus died on the cross... So that you could live with him for eternity. So that you could live in relationship. So that he could be with you. And you could be with him. Forgiveness is a means to an end. And when you begin to grasp the fact that, that God is interested in you. Profoundly interested in you. That his work on that cross. So that you might live in this abiding relationship with him. It begins to change the focus of your Christian life. Jesus explained it this way. He was, if you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000, amazing miracle. 
And Jesus is now on the boat. You read this in the, in the Gospel of John. He's in the boat, and the crowds are, are making their way along the shore, and they're, you know, they want to meet him when he lands. And Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples, and he says, he points at the crowds, and he said, you see the crowds? Do you know why they're making their way around the lake? Do you know why they want to see me? They're interested in bread. They're interested in the stuff. They're not interested in me. They're not interested in knowing who I am. They're interested in what they can get. They're interested in the temporal things of this world, but not the relationship that I might invite them into. And so we see that Jesus here is, is reminding us that the Christian faith at its essence is about him. It's about knowing him. It's about being in relationship to him. And one day, we, if you're a believer, you have the hope of heaven. The predominant thing on our minds, if we get this, is not seeing Uncle Harry. It's not getting to heaven so we get to have new bodies. It's not streets of gold. It's not some mansion somewhere. The joy, the, the goal, the, the profound thing of heaven is going to be to look into the eyes of Jesus. And so we see here the presence of Christ is this source of joy. Excuse me just a minute. <clears throat> and I would say this, if, if that's not the focus of your life, if that's not the source of joy, that when you open your eyes in the morning, you realize that the person of Christ intimately is with you, and that you are in relationship with him, then I would challenge you to consider what the essence of faith is really about. It's about abiding in the vine. And apart from that, Jesus said we can do nothing. So the presence of Christ, experiencing that. Here's the second thing. The second source of joy is to abide in the promises of Christ, or as we would say, the words of Christ. We see this in, in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So, if Christianity is about a relationship with Christ, then there has to be communication. Right? I mean, I, I'm more of an introvert, and when I was first married to my wife, sometimes we would, we would ride in the car, and my wife's an extrovert, and there might be 15 minutes of silence. To my wife, that is like, Unbelievable how two people could sit in the same room and not speak for 15 minutes. And so she was continually reminding me, you know what? If we don't communicate, we don't have a relationship. Well, I think there's times when you can just be with someone, but I'll, I'll grant her that she's true. If there's not communication, you don't really have a relationship. So if you have faith in Christ and, and we're talking about being invited into a relationship, then you can't tell me that Jesus is never speaking. And so, 
Christ speaks to his people. And there is great joy in, in knowing that God is speaking to us. Now in John 15, 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for servants do not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I heard from my father, I have, been, I have made known to you. Jesus said, look, you're my friends. I have told you. I have, I have told you all the things that the Father has told me. So Jesus here is communicating with the disciples. But he's, of course, leaving. And so in John 16, Jesus says, you know what? I have to go. There are many other things I want to, want to tell you. But I'm sending the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. So if you're a believer, God has given you his spirit to speak to you and to lead you and guide you into all truth. And that is how Christ continues to communicate with his people. It's through his word. Now there are, there are two words in, in the New Testament for the word. One is logos, which means the written word. So, you know, we have the written word. And, and then there's the rhema which is another word for the word, and that's the spoken word. I believe that God is always re-speaking his word. I think God, this morning we look at the written word, but as we spend time in the written word and as we talk about it, you might begin to sense something in your heart that God is speaking to you. In fact, Paul says, without the Spirit of God, these things are, you can't discern spiritual things without the Spirit of God. And so I think there are people that sometimes go, well, God never speaks to me. Truth of the matter is, he's always, often speaking to them. In fact, if you got out of bed this morning and you know, you knew that you were a child of God, how did you know that? How was that revealed to you? The Bible says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so God is always wanting to speak to us. Always wanting to speak to us. And so setting our mind on the things of the Word, setting our mind on the promises of God is an incredibly powerful thing. It is a great source of joy in our lives. About three years ago, I, I began spending my morning time on one of seven words. Monday, it was the word love. Tuesday was the word trust. Wednesday was the word thankfulness. Thursday was grace. Friday was hope. Saturday was joy. And Sunday was rest. For three years, I have spent every Monday pondering the love of God for me. You know what Paul said about the love of God? He said, it is so great that it's beyond our ability to comprehend the extent of it. And so what I'm discovering, even though I'm getting old, you know, I mean, people would say, you know what? I know God loves me. I, I know that truth. Let's move on to something else, right? No, you don't know you do not know how much God loves you. The Bible says you can't comprehend it. One day you will. 
One day you'll see him as he is, and it will change you. But I have spent these mornings, and what I, my favorite time of the day are those mornings, because the more I look into what God has given, the greater I see the goodness and the generosity and the profound nature of what God has given me. And so as you spend your time in the word and allow God to speak that back into your life, that it is a great source of joy in your life. I clipped this out some time ago. It was written by a agnostic journalist by the name of Matthew Paris. And this is what he writes. He is by confession, not a Christian. But he writes this. The New Testament offers a picture of God who does not sound at all vague. He sent his son to earth. He has distinct plans for each of us personally and can communicate directly with us. We are capable of forming a direct relationship individually with him. We are told this can be done through his son, and we are offered the prospect of eternal life and afterlife in happy, blissful, and glorious circumstances. Friends, if I believe that, or even a tenth of that, I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away my possessions, leave my acquaintances, and set out into the world burning with a desire to know more, and when I had found more, to act upon it and tell others. Far from being puzzled that Christians should knock on my door, I am unable to understand how anyone who believed that, which is written in the Bible, could choose to spend their waking hours in any other endeavor. Now that's written for a guy from a guy who doesn't even have the spirit of God. And so we who have the spirit of God as we expose ourselves to the word of God and the promises of God, there is a, a joy that will well up as we understand more and more deeply all that God has. He says something really profound here in just before we move on to the last point, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. So God will do whatever you ask, but it's conditional, provided his words are abiding in you. And so Jesus writes his father about his father. He said, I have come to do my father's will. And so we see Jesus in the garden and he says, Father, could you take this cup from me? If there's, if there's any other way, would you please take this cup from me? And then he adds this, but not my will, but your will be done. You look at Paul, he's in prison. You'll be hard pressed to ever see Paul asking that the people would pray that he would be released from prison. He prays for boldness. He prays for an opportunity for the gospel. And so as, as the word of God comes into our mind, it changes how we pray. And as we are filled with the word of God, we pray according to the will of God, and God always answers the prayers we pray according to his will. Well, here's the last one. The purposes of Christ. 
Joy comes from living in the presence of Christ, in the promises of Christ, and in the purposes of Christ. Now, here's what Jesus said. He said, abide in my love. And then he said, if you obey my commands, you will abide in my love. Now, that sounds a little conditional. Does that sound conditional to you? And so as, as you look into this, I think it's important to know that the experience, I want to stress that word, the experience of God's love is conditional. It's very conditional. And so is God's love unconditional? God has a positive, benevolent regard for every human being on the planet. But not everyone is living in that love. Not everyone is experiencing that love. Not everyone is, you know, if, if Jesus defines here a circle of God's love and he said, when you obey my commands, you live in the fullness of the experience of my love. When you don't live, obey my commands, you don't. I think one of the best ways to understand this is think about your, think about your kids if you're a parent. You also love your kids, right? Whether they're good or whether they're bad, there's, there's always a love for your kids. But your child's experience of your love, and especially the reward of that love, is found when they're walking in obedience. And so, you know, if your child has a, a deadline and they're staying out past it, what happens? They lose their privilege. And so it's like God has blessings that he wants to pour out into our lives, but we have to live as we abide in his love, we experience the fullness of that love as we obey his commands and as we live out his purposes in our lives. So here's two purposes I'll give you, and then we'll conclude. One of God's purposes in your life is to make you like Jesus. You might want to write that down because that is a profound truth. So what does that mean? That means that every time something happens in your life, you should ask yourself this question. Does this have an opportunity to make me more like Jesus? So, so where do we get that? Romans 8, 28 says, For God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then if you keep reading in the next verse, that he predetermined that we would be conformed to the image of his son. So God's purpose for your life and for mine is to make me like Jesus. And one day you will be like him. Absolutely perfect. If you are a new creation, do you think that, so if God is creating, is doing a new, making you into a new creation, do you think he's going to end up with something imperfect? No. And so we are in that process of becoming like Jesus. So how do you become more patient? God puts that person in your life, right? How do you become more forgiving? How do you become more persevering? How do you become more compassionate? When I was 49, I had cancer. 
You know how I've, and I'm going, God, what are you doing? I'm 49 years old. What I should have been saying is, God, how are you going to potentially make me more like Jesus? I have a lot more compassion for people that hear the C word. And if you look at your life, you, you know that's true, that all of the, actually all of the hard things in your life have, God has used them to, to deepen, to, to make you into a different person. And so one of God's purposes is to make you like Christ. And as you begin to evaluate your life under that grid, everything changes. And you can find joy, even in the stuff you didn't want. When something happens in my life, you know what my first response is? Is to pray myself out of it. God, I got a bad health report. Would you make me well? God, the, the finances are, are, are low. Would you make me rich? I, I always want to get out from under it, and yet God may be putting me in it and wanting me to live under it because he's doing this work of making me more like Christ. And when I accept that in my life, I can experience joy. That's why James says, count up your joy. Why? When you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know God is making you mature and he's making you steadfast. He's making you like Jesus. Well, here's the last one. The last purpose we see in verse 12. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you'll abide in my love. And here it is. This is not complicated. I'm not giving you a thousand things to do. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Love each other as I have loved you. Love every person you meet. That, you know, if we would just live that out. You know, if you would live that out, you would obey all the Ten Commandments, right? You're not going to lie to people. You're not going to steal from them, right? Children, you're going to obey your parents. I mean, if, if we were to truly love every person we meet, Jesus said, when you do that, you fulfill the law. That means everybody. Whoever, friends, unbelievers, enemies, Jesus said, you, you love everyone. The person that checks you out at the checkout, I had an experience a few, uh, last year I was checking out at Walmart and I walked up and there was kind of a, a younger gal there and she was just like rude. I mean, she didn't look at me, she looked crabby and, and I, you know, I really wanted to tell her something. But <laughs> the Lord had, I had, I had been, and I was prepared for this. This isn't a normal response, but I had, prepared myself that if I checked out with somebody and that I wanted to bless them. So sure enough, God gives me a crabby person, right, to do that. And so I, I looked at her and I said, how are you doing? There's nobody behind me. I said, how are you doing? She said, terrible. She said, I got an hour and a half for my shift. She said, my dad's in the hospital. I don't know how he's doing, and all of a sudden, everything changed, right? <clears throat> and I said, what's your father's name? She said, his name is Bob. I said, you know what? When I walk out to my car, <clears throat> I'm going to pray for your dad. 
And with the sincerest uh, heartfelt, she looked at me and she said, well, thank you. Now, that encounter could have been very different, very different. It's a simple, such a simple example. But if, if we were to wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm going to lose my life today for the sake of loving people, we would experience a joy in our lives that Jesus is talking about. So here we have it. Jesus says, I'm telling you this because I actually want my joy to be in you and I want your joy to be full. I want you to experience my presence. I want you to feel like, know that I'm with you and you're with me and we're walking through life together. I want you to be aware of the profound nature of my word and all that I have promised you and all that I'm doing for you and all that I have in store for you. And I want you to be living out the purposes for which I have you here in this culture and in this world. And as you live in my presence and my promises and my purposes, you will experience a joy in your life. Remember the picture Jesus gives us that our Heavenly Father is always pruning. He's always pruning our lives because when he prunes us, then, then we bear fruit. And so rather than be dismayed or rather than begin to doubt God or to question God when, he, when he's pruning our lives, this passage teaches us that God is actually doing the greatest work in some of the hardest places. I want to conclude with one of my favorite readings. This was written by a young man, seminarian, who was just getting out of seminary. It was his last year. He was doing a practicum in a local nursing care center. And I just want to leave you with this story of a woman named Mabel. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pretty place. It's large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest days, it seems dark inside, and the smell of sickness is almost unbearable. I went there once or twice a week for four years. Never wanted to go. I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited, looking in vain for a few who are alive enough to receive a flower and words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases. Strapped on the carts, in wheelchairs, looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils told me she was blind. A large hearing aid was over one ear that told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten away by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of a cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side and dropped one eye. Her disjointed and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was now the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drilled constantly. 
I was later told that when nurses arrived, new nurses, a supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking if they could stand this, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been there, bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than the, most of the people I saw in the hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke, and much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced from a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can you give it to someone else? I can't see you, no, and I'm blind. Well, I said, of course, and I pushed her chair down the hallway to a place I thought she could find some patience. I found one. She stopped the chair, held out the flower, and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that she was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm. She'd managed with her mother until she died. Then she ran it alone. When her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital for 25 years, she'd gotten weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. I went to see her once or twice a week for three years. Her first words were usually an offer of candy from a tissue box. Some days I would read from the Bible, and often I would pause, and she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. Other days I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in the middle of a hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own life. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in the hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic final week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even to even know if it's day or night? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lay here? She said, I think about my Jesus. And I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty of me thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. I asked, what do you think about? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then she began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, 
my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Well, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked, minutes crawled, so did the days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation as to why it was happening. She lay there. She sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something many of us don't have much of. She had power. And she had joy that only comes from him. Father, as we read this story, we're reminded that you are enough and that the joy that fills us is often, in a strange sort of way, contrary to the losses in our life. Father, you're the vine dresser. You, you, sometimes you take health. Sometimes you take finances. And Father, we pray for that miracle and we pray for that power. And yet we see in the life of Mabel that sometimes the greatest power is the ability to endure with joy in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of life. And so, Father, this morning as we've spent this time, what, what is it that? Lord, what is it that you have wanted us to hear? Lord, just speak to us. It's just that one thing that you want us to walk out knowing that you have spoken to us. And Father, I also pray for anyone here whose Christian life is, is not in, in its core about knowing you. Father, I pray that they would invite you into that abiding place and experience the joy that comes in knowing you. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.